Let's uh, get started. Wednesday, January 23rd, American Jewish History, 1945 to the present. You have 45 minutes to catch us up. Everyone join me in welcoming back for his final Wednesday lunch, Professor Mark Dollinger. Prepare for the rabbi quiz. And here's how it goes. At the 1963 annual meeting of the Rabbinical Assembly, the Conservative Movement's Rabbinic Association, a group of about a dozen rabbis uh, were a little perturbed with their colleagues because they were all passing all the correct resolutions in favor of all the correct social justice positions that rabbis should be, including, of course, since this was 1963, the Civil Rights Movement and support of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Well, this small group of activist rabbis decided that resolutions were not enough. In fact, what they needed to do was adjourn the rabbinic assembly early, get on airplanes, fly to Birmingham, Alabama, where Dr. King was organizing a march. Well, they indeed did uh, go, and if any of our Hebraists are here, other than our honoree, of course, um, it was Rabbi Richard Winograd, the interim director of Hillel at the University of Chicago. Chicago. Well done, a literate group here. And, uh, and when Rabbi Winograd um, got down to Birmingham, uh, he met some uh, Southern Jews who, who saw him at the airport with signs that said, Yankee, go home. All right, so uh, here's our pop quiz question for today. You're a northern rabbi. You've gone to the south to protest Jim Crow segregation. You're met by white southern racist Jews who want nothing to do with their co-religionists marching with Dr. King. Um, what do you say to them? Let's think. Are there any rabbis here today? Oh, yes, rabbi. <laughs> what would you say? What, now, you don't have to say what you would say, because I don't want to put you on the spot. What do you think he should or would have said in the moment? We'll put it like that, to take the pressure off. I only know how to answer it with a question. I think it's the same kind of thing of the American Jew who's taking issue, issues with policies in Israel, and the Israelis saying, you're not the one who has to live here. You're not the one who's Ooh. got to face the consequences. Yeah. You're not the one who has to send your son or daughter into the army back off. And I think it's the same quandary that we face. The northern rabbis coming down into the south because they don't have to live with the consequences. I've probably given this talk 50 times, and you're the first rabbi to get the right answer. Well done. <laughs> yeah, that's what Rabbi Winograd wrote in his personal diary, which is at the archives of the Hebrew Union College in Cincinnati. He wrote that, uh, that he understood the southern Jewish position, that he didn't think it was appropriate for him to pass judgment on someone who's living a very different life as a southern Jew, um, and that until he walks in their shoes, he's not going to judge them. He said, from a moral point of view, the scales were very even. And who could have imagined the northern rabbi of all people saying to the southern racist Jews that they are no more or less moral than he was for what he was doing, and for Rabbi Winograd, the challenge was not the fact that American Jews split over the civil rights movement. For him, it was what he called the situation that led to pitting Jew against Jew. It was for him, Kalal Yisrael, that all of Israel is responsible one for another, and the civil rights movement had split American Jews. Well, uh, I will just say, when I read that entry and I read his response, and, and I actually did not, did not anticipate you know, the, the rabbi's response. I, 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 of course, thought he's going to berate them because that's what you should do because they're racists. Um, it actually changed that chapter. It changed the book, and it actually changed the whole way that I looked at the issue of American Jewish politics. Uh, and with that, good afternoon. Welcome back. It's great to see you. Sadly for me that... the What's that? Isn't what you said is happening right now? Well, that is such a great segue to Saturday evening when uh, my talk will be American Jewish history in the present and the future. And uh, I've been thinking a lot about that question. So I'll, I'll hold off because, because of the... Sunday. 
uh, Sunday, sorry, that's right, Sunday night, that, and, and uh, because Saturday night I'll be elsewhere teaching something else. Um, so our historical question for today is, of course, not here yet because we have the CSP Hat Challenge photos for you. Uh, and here we have Wendy, and do, do we want to have them guess where it is, or? Alaska. Yeah. Oh, I think I was there. Do you remember? Vancouver. All right. There we go. Yeah, it looks like the beaches of Normandy to me. And a pizza place. I'm going with that. All right. New York City. Uh, here we are. Uh, and the historical question assess the history of American Jewish life in the years after 1945. The first week we did a couple hundred years. The second week we shortened it. This week we'll shorten it yet again. And of course, as far as I'm concerned, as someone who studies the 50s and 60s mostly, this is of course the most important lecture and needs the most, uh, most amount of time. Uh, but first, I have a few announcements. Uh, and it's on the, the book sale question. So just to let you know, when um, Jewish audiences come to books, to book talks, my, I mean, my thought is you're coming to a book talk to hear about the book and buy it, but it turns out most people are coming to hear about the book and, and not buy it. Um, <laughs> uh, I had 100 people show up, you know, when California Jews came out, I sold 10 books. I was disappointed. The bookseller says, oh, you're doing great. 10% a good return rate, you know, so now I've learned 10% is good, 5% is average. So. Sold one. There, all right, I'm with you, right? The Workmen's Circle, the Socialist Club, had two people attending. They bought three books. The socialists, <laughs> the socialists are the best capitalists in my history. So, um, so, so, so when I filled the trunk with my books, I was expecting to drive back with the books. But CSP buys books, and and basically. Uh, earlier in the month, they basically all sold out. So when Marcy went home, I had her and Shana like pack their suitcases with more books, and now they're almost all sold out again too. So <laughs> she was very happy I was having to do that. So here's how it's going to work. Um, uh, I have the books, and today's talk is on this book called Quest for Inclusion. It was the first book on Jews and liberalism, and I have and I have California Jews, and. I sell out and you don't want it, I brought the envelopes and you write your name and as soon as I get home on Monday, I'm going to stick a signed book. I will sign it in here and drop it in the mail on Tuesday so you, everyone can get the book if you want. And I'll say to Ari, um, I, I am very well compensated and treated so well here. I do not take any royalties on any of the books I sell. I donate it all back to CSP. So Ari, you will set the price for whatever you want. The higher you set it, the more money's coming your way. You are conflicted on that question. <laughs> All right. <laughs> That's great. Um, and I'm not bringing any more Black Power books because, because we got a case and, I, and the second printing sold out because um, Jewish Federations of North America bought one for every one of their young leaders across North America, which is great. And I just got the third printing approved yesterday, so in about two weeks there'll, there'll be more books. And yesterday I just got an offer to go do that book talk at, at the APAC Policy Conference in D.C. So if you will be at APAC, you can hear me there. I am told it is a major donor event. I don't know what that means for them, but there might be a donor level that's up to you and APAC to, uh, to fight about. So um, a lot of words today, but we'll get into it. In the wake of the Shoah, the Holocaust, the United States emerged as one of only two centers of Jewish life in the world. With rapid acculturation of Jews into the white suburban middle class, communal, leader, communal leaders grappled with questions of Jewish identity. A 1950s consensus-based approach to American life, which is typified by interfaith and the civil rights work, gave way in the 60s to ethnic nationalism, which brought many Jews back to their own tradition. Exceptionalism, that was the theme we've talked about the last two weeks, if it ever resonated in American Jewish history, proved the most dominant in the post-war period. So with that, I actually was going through to prepare this, and I realized that there's some things um, I, I had like hidden, like I'd used years ago, but I forgot, and it came up on the computer, so I want to share it with you. When I do the historiography definition, remember the first week, and I've given it a few times, um, this is um, Professor Oliver Chitwood. And Professor Chitwood wrote a book in 1961 called A History of Colonial America. 
And it's important, he was a distinguished scholar. It was the standard textbook of colonial America. It was used in Columbia University's PhD history program. So if you were getting it, and this is from Professor Gary Nash, now retired from UCLA, this was his textbook, and he's the one who taught us this in grad school. I'm gonna to read to you a paragraph from Chitwood's book so you can understand what historiography is, which is to say this paragraph was accepted as truth and you're supposed to like memorize it for your doctoral qualifying exams. Good feeling between master and slave was promoted in large measure by the happy disposition and docile temperament of the Negro. Seldom was he surly and discontented and rarely did he harbor a grudge against his master for depriving him of his liberty. On the contrary, as a rule, he accepted his inferior status as a matter of course and went about his daily tasks cheerfully, often singing while at work. It was these qualities that gave the Negro the greatest adaptability to slavery of all the races known to history. So by the way, if you're Gary Nash and you're in grad school and that's what you have to read and he's thinking, I've got a dissertation. And he invented social history because he read that and he said that's actually not the way it was. Um, and certainly when African Americans got to grad school after the civil rights movement, they were also able to read this stuff and say it wasn't. And in that spirit, here's Professor Hugh Trevor Roper. And in his book called The Stages of Progress, he writes, it is fashionable to speak today as if European history were devalued, as if historians in the past had paid too much attention to it and as if nowadays we should pay less. Undergraduates, seduced as always by the changing breath of journalistic fashion, demand that they should be taught the history of black Africa. Perhaps in the future, there will be some African history to teach, but at present there is none or very little. There is only the history of the Europeans in Africa. The rest is largely darkness like the history of pre-European, pre-Columbian America. And darkness is not a subject for history. Yeah, um, this, was, this would have been in the early 60s. I mean, it would have been read in the early 60s. I don't know when it was actually published. Um, so so that, that is to sort of explain, you know, ex how terrible it used to be. So, so now we'll move to a new historiographic interpretation of the post-war era, and it starts, of course, with the Shoah that that was a pivotal turning point in American Jewish history. Because in 1945, uh, sadly, the United States emerged as the center of world Jewry. Certainly in 1948, the State of Israel will be created and there will be two centers of world Jewry uh, as that goes. Um, but we're gonna focus on the US side. In 1933, the year Hitler came to power, there were nine and a half million Jews living in Poland. Poland represented 60% of the population of Jews in the entire world. And after the Shoah ended in 1950, estimates were about 45,000. So you went from nine, from nine and a half million to 45,000. That, that's not all killed, that's also people who just left because there was no future for Jews in Poland. Um, in 1950, with 45,000 Jews in Poland, the American Jewish population was four and a half million. Uh, that is, that is an uh, incredible flip in, in the matter of, of less than a decade. So American exceptionalism, to go back to our theme of the last two weeks, yeah, okay. This was a painful case for exceptionalism. Sadly, the US was different and better for Jews than any other place in the world because it turned out the United States, at least for those Eastern European Jewish parents and grandparents that got out you know, in the 1880s to the 1920s, they were able to have a safe place to live. So the story of American Jewish history after 1945 must be framed by these world events. Um, and it begins for us with the GI Bill. The GI Bill, and some of you were probably beneficiaries of it, or certainly your, your parents were, um, gave World War II veterans who were returning uh, in 1945 support for college, support for small business loans, support for home mortgages. Um, it was what um, uh, the author of the, uh, of the Jews and Whiteness book called um, the largest affirmative action program in the US government. And it was related to service people, which in this case were predominantly um, white folks. So, so with the GI Bill, 
And with the post-war era emerging and the economic expanse, Jews were admitted into the white middle class. Anti-Semitism, which was so terrible in the US in the 20s and the 1930s, um, through the 1950s dropped precipitously. Now certainly in 1950, there's a lot of quotas, a lot of anti-Semitism going on. By 1960, the statisticians show that 90% of the anti-Semitic discrimination of a decade before had been eased. So you can say that in the 1950s, you know, Jews were entering the middle class, or certainly by 1960 they did. Um, because of the GI Bill, and because of this decrease in anti-Semitism through the 50s, American Jews were able to move into the suburbs. And, uh, and this process you know, was, was um, a rapid integration of Jews into largely non-Jewish neighborhoods. Um, also, uh, oh wow, I didn't know I put that picture. Is that, is that a reminder or did I find another one? I tried to find, I tried to find the local university. Uh, Universe, because of the GI Bill and because of the, of, of the service people coming back, the number of students who enrolled at public universities skyrocketed in the 1950s. And for that reason, public universities, land-grant universities in the Midwest especially, had to expand to tens of thousands of students. And now the opportunity to get an undergraduate education expanded across the country and especially um, for American Jews. So the earlier generations, you know, like the immigrant was not formally educated. The first generation kid that was born in the US, maybe they got to eighth grade or high school before they had to quit to help the family. But certainly that generation that came of age in the 50s, because of economic expansion, suburbanization, growth of public universities, it became the standard for a Jewish kid growing up yeah, you're gonna, you can go to college if you want to go to college. I mean, not everybody did for different reasons, but the notion that, that you could do it um, came up. And, um, and largely it was because of the construction of, as we say it here in Orange County, massive suburban neighborhoods where every house is basically the same blueprint or every second house is the same, or every third house is the same. I grew up in Palos Verdes in one of those suburbs, which was great, because if I went to my next door neighbor's house, I didn't have to ask where the bathroom was. <laughs> I mean, the decorations were different, but I at least knew which door to open. Um, and this is the most famous of them, for the people from New York, it's Levittown, right? Which was a Jewish uh, construction builder, and, uh, and he was able to deploy a lot of the lessons of World War II um, factory work to try to get the U.S. You know, set up for the war to now build massive amounts of houses. And what's, what's important for us, a theme we've been developing over the course of the month, is that in Levittown, uh, while Jews were admitted and Jews built it, it was racially restricted. That Jews who entered into the middle class or entered into whiteness, entered into privilege, then were faced with the same sorts of questions about how are they going to identify as Jews around issues of racial justice? And this would be a more typical response, which is that Jews did live the American dream and buy their houses in Levittown, uh, even though um, African Americans were still excluded. In religious life, um, there was a challenge in the 1950s because prior to this, most synagogues were in the cities. A lot of people walked to the synagogues, even if they weren't uh, traditionally um, Shomer Shabbat. But once they moved out to the suburbs, you pretty much had to drive to your synagogue, and that's going to be a problem if you're not supposed to drive to the synagogue on Shabbat. So for the reform movement, driving was not an issue, so it didn't really matter where they set their synagogues. In the Orthodox community, and they tended to stay in the cities anyway, you pretty much you had to live walking distance. The conservative movement, though, in the 1950s faced a great halachic question of the modern period, which is, can you drive to go to shul? And the rabbinic um, assembly committee in charge of this came up with a famous ruling where they said, it is now permissible according to halakha, according to the conservative movement, that you can drive on Shabbat so long as you are driving directly to shul, parking the car, and driving directly home. You cannot stop at the market on either way. You know, that does not, that does not work. Um, so that was sort of a, a great moment for how the post-war world and suburbanization intersected with American religion. Um, Frank Lloyd Wright um, 
uh, was des uh, designing synagogues across the country, and now synagogues in the 50s became very big. And oh, so this is not that that one. This is this is this is the, the classic synagogue, Toro synagogue, right? But if you looked at synagogues from Toro um, and to Elkins Park, I couldn't. It's a beautiful synagogue. Beth Sholem and Elkins Park, right? And now you see that Jews are translating the material wealth and the suburbs in order to build edifices, um, which they call the edifice complex, by the way, um, <laughs> in order to show the integration of their new middle class status and their continued devotion to their religion in a Christian-dominated suburb where the churches are also going to look really impressive as well. Um, and uh, okay, so that's synagogue construction boom. That's great. Next, uh, this is a very famous book. I think I've mentioned it in some lecture. I don't know who was there or someone else mentioned it actually. It's by Will Herberg, a soci Jewish sociologist. It's called Protestant Catholic Jew. And uh, what a great title for a book <laughs> Protestant Catholic Jew. That kind of says that in America, there's three groups Protestants, Catholics, and Jews. Now, if you're a mathematician, the title of that book would give American Jews a 33rd and 1 3rd percent share of American religion. The population of American Jews at the time the book was published was 2%. So I, we think, I think that this title and this visual is a great way to understand American Jewish life in the 1950s. That even though there were very, very few Jews around, they were understood to be a dominant force in American religious life and American cultural life because now Judaism is respected as a progenitor to Christianity rather than being hated because of what was called supersessionism, which was where anti-Semitism came from it. If you've ever heard of the phrase Judeo-Christian ethic, yes. okay, by the way, Jewish people never say that. Uh, Christian people say that, and there's actually two scholars who are writing histories of the phrase Judeo-Christian and, and sort of unpacking what that means. Uh, if you look at Judeo-Christian, it's a 50-50 proposition, <laughs> and Jews are first. So Jews generally don't object to Christians speaking of their love of the Judeo-Christian ethic because because that's giving great kavod, great honor to Judaism as, as the forerunner. And I think we can, we can now take a, a deep, relaxing breath of relief in the 50s with anti-Semitism dropping, economic potential of Jews increasing, integration into the suburbs happening, and now Protestant, Catholic, Jew, or Judeo-Christian becoming the way in which Jews are being reconceived in American society. Um, this is a, a little map in San Francisco of a place called Brotherhood Way. Uh, isn't that a beautiful name? I mean, first of all, it's gendered, so we have to say that. Um, that said, Brotherhood Way is, is a street created um, in the 50s for interfaith cooperation. And they got synagogues and churches from across the religious spectrum to build a, next door to one another on the same road. The Jewish Day School, the Brandeis School of San Francisco is now located um, right next to Beth Israel Judea. I don't think it's listed there. So that um, any and all, in this case, San Franciscans who are coming to their religious services are going to um, see that there are lots of other religions and that they all live and work together um, wonderfully. So. Oh, yes, and there's a golf. And, and uh, across the street where it says that the housing development there, yeah, that was a big political issue because, you know, the developers and the anti-developers in San Francisco, but they've actually completed all of the homes there by now. And Lake Merced on the left, it's nice because there's water there too. It's right next to SF State. So um, everyone feeling good now about the 50s? That was the setup. Thank you very much. And now we're going to move to the Civil Rights Movement. That's going to be chapter seven of the book. This was my dissertation. It was the first book. And just to give you the value of it, here's how it works. When, academic, when university presses publish books, they, um, they count on every research library in the country buying it. And then you're going to buy it, and your mom's going to buy it, and your mother-in-law's going to buy it, and they're happy. <laughs> so they charge $140 for the book. Yeah, because they're not here to sell books, right? So uh, fortunately, because I'm the author, I got it for 
uh, 20 bucks. So uh, you'll, you'll price it from there. So that whatever price he puts on it, you know, you could, yeah, okay, you can do it. And, and, then, and then you can see it. So um, why did, now by the way, if you happen to been to an earlier one and I asked this question, you can't answer it or tell your friends that's cheating. Um, why did American Jews in the 1950s join the civil rights movement to aid African Americans with Dr. King? What would be the rationale? The fancy historian's word is causality. What would the causality be? Yeah. We were slaves too. All right, so Jews were slaves too. Um, and this is called the history argument. And the history argument makes sense because Jewish history is pretty bad and African American history is pretty bad. So. Jews and blacks share a common history and it would bring them together. Uh, that's one of the three. Well done. Get a pencil afterwards. Yeah, Wendy? Guilt. Guilt. Okay, how's that go? Well, maybe for the, the collective guilt for how blacks had been treated up to that point. Okay, that's excellent. And so what I want to do is dive one step deeper, which is where does the guilt come from? Social that would justice. Social justice. And where does social justice come from? Torah, thank you. Okay, that's number three. Nobody ever gets number three. Number three, um, and, and I just, you know, for the rabbi, I'll say, Judaism is supposed to have the prophetic mandate, and Jews are supposed to engage in social justice because Torah says to do that. So that's, so that's number three. And there's one more argument. Yeah? I'm going to say economics. Okay, and how's that work? <clears throat> Neighborhoods that Jews were leaving were being settled the black blacks were moving into those neighborhoods. There were Jewish businesses in those neighborhoods. There was a lot of commercial interaction between Jews and blacks. Right. So it so, made yeah. sense to maintain good relations for that purpose. I love that theory. Sadly, it didn't play out that way. That's okay. So the argument is that there was a economic cooperation largely in the north between Jewish shop owners and African American customers and that kind of business relationship would have created a sense of camaraderie and sisterhood and brotherhood. So I will just say that was in the north. We're talking now about the south for now right now. But when we get to the north, we're going to learn that when African Americans moved into what were used to be Jewish neighborhoods before, the, that's when the Jews actually moved to the suburbs in the 50s. I'll hold on it only because, I, because of time and say that the related third argument is um, blacks and Jews' common understanding of what it is to be marginalized, what it is to be othered, what it is to be non-white, what it is to be different from everybody else. So if blacks and Jews have, are both existing on the outside of power, then they will have a natural alliance to bring them together. We all good on those three? Because none of them are right. I mean, <laughs> they're right because people think that, and that's in fact where, well, dare we say it, the first historiographic generation of treatment of this subject came. What does it look like to you up there? The letter Y. But to me, it is, dare I say it, a representation of the filiopietistic historiographic assessment of black Jewish relations in the 1950s. Can't you see? I get a pencil for using that, integrating it. So let's imagine on the top left of the letter Y are African Americans and the top right side are Jews. See how they're separate? But if we go down the Y, they come together in the middle. Let's just say 1954, you know, with either um, the Brown decision or the Montgomery bus boycott with Rosa Parks. That's kind of the beginning of the modern civil rights movement and the Black Jewish Alliance. And then from 1954 marching down, blacks and Jews are together. Now, people have noted, um, and I think Alina might have noted that I'm not sure that, that the font here at the bottom of the Y has it spreading out again. I do not mean to, to throw anyone off with the font. I will go find another font that does not offer anything that's fancy so we can see. If you read... If you read any book about blacks and Jews in the first historiographic generation, no matter the topic or the focus, community study, national, whatever it is, it's going to have the same thesis. Blacks and Jews were separate for the three reasons you described. They came together, and it's all beautiful, right? And um, since we had Martin Luther King weekend last weekend, and they're having all the talks, th this is what all of the sermons were saying, because it has to say that because you have to honor the moment. Well, here's the deal. Um, the history argument breaks down quickly. African-American history is the history of slavery and its legacy. 
Jewish American history is the history of the rapid social and economic mobility of American Jews by the second generation, if not by the third generation, into the suburbs, into the universities, and into professional life. Or as uh, my colleague Milton Brown, an African-American sociologist of ethnicity and race, and the former head of the state of New Jersey's Black Jewish Dialogue Group explained to me, if I go to another Passover Seder and they tell me they know what it's like to be black in America because they too were slaves in the land of Egypt, I'll scream. <laughs> because from African American perspectives, the history of the white allies is not actually the history of black Americans. And then sociologically speaking, it, it, it breaks down similarly. Um, Jews and blacks did not join together till the 50s. Eric Goldstein, in his excellent book, The Price of Whiteness, which was originally his doctoral dissertation at the University of Michigan, argues that Jews could only ally with blacks after they had achieved middle-class status. Um, and he gives a bunch of reasons. And if it were history and marginality, if it, was, if it was marginality that brought Jews together, it would have been the 20s and the 30s where the alliance happened because that's when the anti-Semitism was at its height. So as a student of history, he's like, no, if you're going to make that argument as for causality, that that's what caused history to happen the way it did, then you've got to explain why it didn't happen when that actually was worse. And, and then sadly, on the Judaism Torah part, if we're going to define um, normative orthodox halakha or Jewish law, that the orthodox are the denomination for whom living according to 613 commandments, and it's problematic to, to talk about halakha in only orthodox terms, but if we'll just go there for a minute, the orthodox should lead all other American Jews with Dr. King because they know more than any other American Jews what Torah says about social justice. Yet, they're all but totally absent, which tells us there has to be a different interpretation of social justice, at least in that denomination. And then you move to the conservative movement, which is sort of the next one in terms of bound by the normative halakhic standards. Rabbi Heschel's the most famous from that movement, and Rabbi Winograd I opened with, but it was not so many. The biggest movement involved was the reform movement, because they focused more on the prophets um, and that part of Tanakh or the Hebrew Bible. So um, that's great, except that we now have an inverse relationship between level of halakhic observance and engagement in civil rights. And now, and we are recording it, and I am tenured, so it's okay. Most of the Jews didn't go as Jews anyway, or at least they did not identify with Jewish organizations as the cause for their involvement. They, they joined SNCC or CORE or other civil rights groups and some of them were socialists, and some of them were communists, and most of the kids who went south were actually rejecting organized religion, which a colleague at Brandeis University says is the first indicator of Jewishness. So in denying their Jewishness, they're actually affirming their Jewishness. But other than that particular idea, um, the, the Judaism argument is problematic, and as we learned from Rabbi Winograd, it, it also plays in different ways. So um, in my first book, um, I changed the Y to an X, which is to say, right, so there's blacks at the top and Jews on the other side. They come together in the middle of the X in 1954, but let's just say they hung around for only about 10 years. Until you say, you say the Jews and the blacks came together. The Jews came to the blacks. I don't think the blacks came to the Jews ever. So the question was, so it, it, it's an objection that, to, the, to the argument that Jews and blacks came together. First of all, I'm saying the Jews and the blacks, and of course that's hopeless reductionism, because I'm trying to also show that in the Jewish American community it's divided in a number of ways, and it is in the African American community too. But for, in 45 minutes, I'm, I'm just going to play that. And, and I believe that you're absolutely correct, which is to say... American white Jews are quite fascinated with Dr. King and civil rights and blacks and being involved. And African Americans are far less um, interested in that. Um, to put it another way, I always get a student group saying, we're having the black Jewish dialogue group. Will you come talk? You know, and I'd say, I'm happy to talk, but blacks won't show up. Oh, no, I called them. They'll be there. We've, we've announced it. And so I show up, and there's only white Jews there, and they're really mad that there's no blacks. So I say, I take out my pre-prepared -pre lesson plan, which is, why are white Jews upset that blacks didn't show up? You know? 
which is actually a reflection on what's going on with white Jews and not, not at all what's going on with African Americans for whom relationships with white Jews is, is just frankly not there. I, I have to hold off on questions only to, to, to power through and then we can get questions at the end. So in the X theory, by 1964-1965, the Black Jewish Alliance split. Uh, the rise of black power, black anti-Semitism, passage of the Civil Rights Act, the Voting Rights Act in 65. And you can see now at the bottom, that's today where blacks and Jews are separate. And if you look at the Black Lives Matter platform, the Women's March controversy with Louis Farrakhan and the Nation of Islam, I think it's far more accurate if you're writing a book not to have that anymore uh, and, and to have this instead. So let's look to, <laughs> thank you, I, I just got uh, uh, just applause from our honoree, so I will, I will take the applause. Um, and uh, I wanted to put this book up here because this, this is the book cover of Rabbi Krause's posthumously published book, um, Quiet Voices, Southern Rabbis and Black Civil Rights, 1880s to 1990s. And, and, and this is, when I was a grad student and I went to the archives, Rabbi Krause did his rabbinic thesis um, on Southern Reform rabbis during the movement in 65, he did oral history interviews. But in order to get an honest answer, he promised not to reveal their name, nor to reveal their community, so nobody could trace them. And it was a generation later, and I'm sitting in the archives, he's got great quotes, but they're like, Rabbi A from Community B said, and that's worthless to me, but the good news is I was his, camp, his son's camp counselor, so I played that and sent him a fax. That used to be what they're called because he was on sabbatical in Jerusalem. And I said, would you release the key to me? And he did. So I got to be the first one to publish his work. And um, I'm actually here now as a consequence because um, the, the synagogue brought me down when the book launched to, to, to sort of give the book launch. Um, and Steve was there, uh, Rabbi Krause's son, and, and ultimately that got, me, that got me here. So here is from Rabbi Krause's um, thesis. Southern Jews did not support the civil rights movement, or at least did not support it in the public way that the Northern Jews did. There's a debate on that. Um, and the first reason, and this will get to Rabbi Winograd's response, demographics. In Montgomery, there were 1,800 Jews in an overall population of 134,000. This is a tiny minority. In Birmingham, 4,000 Jews in a population of 630,000. Now, in places like Atlanta, you know, you'll be more Jews, but it's also an urban area. But if you go to the small little towns in like Mississippi and Alabama, Louisiana, there'll be just a few Jewish families usually running the mercantile store on the main street. So they're living a vulnerable existence. And there's threat of economic boycott during the civil rights movement um, on both sides. If you sell to African-Americans, the white will whites will boycott you and, re and reverse on the other way. As Rabbi Milton Grafman in Birmingham Synagogue said, his congregants were, quote, caught in a vice between the Negroes and the whites. They couldn't win for losing. Anti-Semitism in the South was an issue. Uh, Leo Frank, the lynching of Leo Frank in 1913 was in the memory of two generations of Southern Jews. Rabbi Jacob Rothschild from Atlanta, from the temple as they called it, his synagogue was bombed in 1958 occurring in part, as he said, because I was so obviously identified with the civil rights movement. In Houston, Rabbi William Malev, Houston's largest conservative movement synagogue, said, the rabbis have not spoken out, and to have done so would have been to invite resentment and anti-Semitism, if not indeed violence towards the Jewish community. Rabbi Moses Landau, the spiritual leader in Cleveland, Mississippi, said if he decided to support the civil rights movement, quote, it would have been limited to 24 hours. After that single day, he said, I wouldn't be in this state anymore. The Jewish community could not exist, could not exist if they in any way involved in the civil movement. Well, in 1961 was Freedom Summer, a lot of Northern Jewish college students come down. They're registering people to vote. They're doing activism. They get arrested. They get sent to jail in Mississippi in the jail called Parchman. And uh, there is the local rabbi, Rabbi Nussbaum, who actually retired here to San Diego. Some people may know, know of Rabbi Nussbaum. He just passed away a few years ago. Well, he's got to be the rabbi to go up to Parchman to help out, get their names, 
get letters to send, you know, to do all of the things that, that rabbis do. And, and he got tired of, of the constant commute. So he put out a letter to all the rabbis in Mississippi to say, let's have a meeting to set up a schedule, you know, like on call, like each of us will do a week and that way, that way it will be better. And uh, wow, uh, this is what happened. Rabbi Moses Landau of Cleveland condemned Rabbi Nussbaum for his violation of the South's unwritten rules on the issues of race. There was no reason for the rabbis to meet, he explained. He was opposed to any jail visitations by what he called uninvited rabbis. You'd have to be invited by the whites, by the sheriff, right? Unless the sheriff invites you in, you don't go in. That's part of the Southern etiquette. And here was the quote that he wrote in his letter to, to his colleague. It is your privilege to be a martyr. There are dozens of vacant pulpits. You can pick yourself up within 24 hours and leave. Can you say the same of about 1,000 Jewish families in this state? All right, now the next line I'm not so thrilled about, but he said, I am paid by my congregation, and as long as I eat their bread, I shall not do anything that might harm any member of my congregation without their consent. Rabbi Alan Schwartzman of Greenville, Mississippi, I am wondering whether we as local rabbis would not be harming our people, our positions as rabbis, and the good work that we're doing in the racial problems of Mississippi by going to bat for these temporary inmates. Um, even those who supported this idea of a meeting um, were revealing the deeper issues. Rabbi Sidney Goldstein of Meridian, Mississippi, blessings on you. You make me feel very proud that the rabbinate comes up with people like you. <laughs> Well, Nussbaum ended up canceling the meeting. It never happened. And just for having asked for a meeting to talk about it, his own congregation's board of directors, quote, uneasily, that was their word, uneasily consented to the visits, but only with the stipulation that Nussbaum say he's going, quote, without any identification of my congregation. Several congregants registered their disapproval with their rabbi by going to the local sheriff, Others, of course, resigned their temple memberships. So it was a complex situation for Southern Jews. Are we feeling, in a weird way, empathetic to Southern Jews for the problems? Or at least I'm trying to show some empathy uh, for the Southern Jews. And now we will take down the Northern Jews because we had too much empathy walking into the room. Well, if you're studying Northern Jews in the Civil Rights Movement, what you want to do is look at a moment before people were watching. Everyone's watching from 1954 on because that's when the civil rights movement begins. So just for fun, I go into the archives and I start looking in 1945. And in 1945, well, it got to be 1947, um, I noticed the, uh, this transcript of, of a debate on the U.S. Senate Subcommittee on Education because after World War II, the federal government decides it needs to support public education because states pay for public schools. In the Cold War, fighting the commies, the states aren't going to have enough money to build the kind of engineers we need to fight the communists. So the federal government's going to put a gazillion dollars in state schools. And uh, well, so there was testimony being given. And, and, and the testimony is, uh, is about Jim Crow. And, and the, following, the following is stated. So long as the law, which would be the law to give public funds, so long as the law guarantees that states having segregated school systems do not discriminate financially against children in minority schools, we believe the bill should be supported. What does it mean to argue that you can have separate racial schools as long as they are financially equal? This is, for the lawyers in the room, this is a Plessy versus Ferguson case of 1896. That's important because the Brown decision of 54 overturned the Plessy case. Plessy said, and this was with interstate railroads, if, as long as the whites and the blacks have equal railroad cars, you can keep the races separate. And the Brown case was important because it said, even if it's equal financially, and by the way, it's never equal financially, but even if it is, it is inherently unequal. Who on earth would argue in favor of racial segregation? Rabbi Stephen S. Wise of New York's Free Synagogue. The leader of his generation, a personal friend of President Franklin D. Roosevelt at the time, 
And, uh, and it was stunning to read that he's defending Plessy. Well, of course, I had to do the research to figure out why the le one of the leading northern rabbis would defend segregation. It turns out that after he gave his testimony for public education, which is a good rabbinic thing to do, some white southern senators pulled him into a side room and said, uh, we don't want any federal dollars in the South because when you put in federal dollars, you put the strings attached, you're going to go after segregation. So here's the deal, Rabbi. You either go back there and agree to an amendment that says you're not going to touch Jim Crow or this bill will never get out of committee. And now Rabbi Weiss has an impossible moral choice. Do I agree to sell out African-Americans for the sake of white Americans to at least get federal dollars into schools across the country? Or do I sacrifice the entire country because of these racist, bigot, white Southern senators? And we can see that what he said is, so long as you give equal money, okay, I'll agree to the amendment. Now, this is called liberal gradualism, which means when you're bringing social change, you can't get everything at once. It's step by step. And he said, okay, we'll take this step, even though, of course, there's more work to be done. Well, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was uh, too young to have attended that meeting. But if he did, what would he have said to that deal? There's no way he would agree to that deal because his whole point is to help African-Americans in education. So what happened was... Um, the rabbi was enjoying the privilege of being white and he was able to make that choice. And that, if we see that as informing the Black Jewish Alliance of the 50s, we see an essential difference between the two communities. And, and I argue in, in my current book on black power, which most of you should have because you're members, that, um, that, that that's actually what happened. That even the white, largely white male senior leadership of national Jewish organizations um, understood what was going on. So uh, the American Jewish Committee in 1969 said, black power stresses black initiative, black self-worth, black identity, and black pride. It is stunning that a center-right organization would, um, would say something like that. Um, rabbi Roland Gittleson, senior rabbi of Temple Israel of Boston, says the positive aspect of black power is its search for ethnic identity. This we Jews of all people should be able to understand and approve. This is uh, Arthur Hertzberg, rabbi, Columbia University professor, author of The Zionist Idea. Perhaps the saddest element in this whole frightening picture is in the fact that Jews are the people best able to understand the rhetoric of black power, even though they're most directly on the firing line of its attack. And indeed, Rabbi Hertzberg was the one whose words resonated because American Jewish leaders, rather than just focusing on the anti-Semitism of black power, said, hey, if the blacks are going nationalists, maybe the Jews could go nationalists too. Rabbi Dove Peretz Elkins wrote in his sermon in Philadelphia, black power is nothing more and nothing less than Negro Zionism. <laughs> Hertzberg said, um, the most said that Stokely Carmichael, the leader of Black Power, was the most radical kind of Negro Zionist. He talks exactly the language of those Jews who felt angry at the sight of Hitler and most angry by the good people who stood aside. Gittleson said the Black Power advocate is the Negro's Zionist. Africa is his Israel. Case after case, rabbi after rabbi, celebrating Black Power and using it to tell American Jews that you should actually become more Zionist and you should let the, the, let the blacks lead the way. The Soviet Jewry movement, I learned in my research, only grew in the late 60s because black power gave American Jews the confidence to go out in the street and march. They were not going to march in the mid-50s when they should have if they're fighting the anti-communist Soviet Union. McCarthy era is when you want to get U.S. congressional support for you. They waited to the mid-60s and I argue that when the Jews were going in the suburbs in the 50s, they were trying to kind of downsize their public Jewishness. But thanks to the 60s, thanks to black power, thanks to everyone marching in the streets, um, here they were. And uh, there was a religious revival too for Tevye. The most popular book published by Jewish Publication Society the late 60s and early 70s was of course the Hebrew Bible. What was the second most popular book? The Jewish Catalog, How to Be Jewish Using Macrame. 
because it was a countercultural hippie book about how to be how to knit your own kippah, how to braid your own challah, right? And the reason it was a bestseller is you had a generation of young Jews raised in the 50s that never got Jewish education because of the suburbs. And then they went through the 60s when all the ethnic racial gender groups are all discovering their identities and they want to too. So this was a bestseller. They had the Jewish catalog two. They had the Jewish catalog three. They had the Jewish kids catalog. They didn't have the Jewish catalog four because by the time that many years passed, the kids that bought the Jewish catalog one got married, had kids, sent them to religious school, day school, Jewish summer camps. They don't need no book to tell them how to be Jewish anymore. Was that by and, the uh, uh, Brandeis kids, some Brandeis graduates? I yeah, think, who, who wrote the book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and the, lead, the lead author just passed away about a year ago. The neoconservatives also took the politics of American Jews to the right coming from the black power movement because if the blacks are going to stand up for distinctly black interests, they're going to stand up for Jewish interests, which they think are conservative. The Jewish Defense League is probably the best example, where they were actually a paramilitary Jewish organization playing on Oakland's Black Panthers, which was a black paramilitary organization. So at a time that in the post-war period, Jews thought they were being more Jewish, they were actually becoming more American, and they were actually just becoming black power activists. Thank you very much. Uh, Mike. Okay, so um, you have a partial thesis at least that Jews turned inward in the late 60s, 70s, and became more Jewish and interested in Jewish causes, uh, even ritual. Um, you know, reading the Who surveys and that kind of thing, you learned, Pew, P-E-W, yeah. yeah. that over time Jews have you know, lost identification with Jewish institutions and becoming less Jewish. So there's there's a little bit of divergence in what you're saying from that. The, the question really is, was there a period of time when that turning inward stopped and we're no longer in that phase of turning inward, but we're now into just becoming more secular? I'm only saddened by your question because it's the perfect transition to Sunday night's talk because that's exactly what I'm going to say, but I'm going to answer it as a tease for everyone on Sunday night, which is, yes, you're correct on all points, and, there, and it's because there's a break. So the Pew study now is showing a greater disinterest between Jews and identifying as Jews in a variety of different ways. Um, my overarching career thesis is that Jews tend to emulate the dominant culture around them, and that's what we tend to see, and I find it interesting when they don't, right? So I, that's how I view it, which means... When the Southern Jews in the South in the Civil Rights Movement, um, let me just so I don't forget that part, um, were copying Dixie and copying the White South. And then the Northern Jews were doing the opposite, fighting for Dr. King and civil rights. The historiography has them as opposite because they took opposite views. I wrote in my book that they were the same. And they were the same because Southern Jews were like white Southerners. Northern Jews were like white northerners, and in the South you had to do this way to fit in, and in the North you had to be something else. So what was the story actually the story of? It was a story of the quest for inclusion, dare I say, right? And in the idea of Jews becoming inc included, they do that. So what happened after 1975 and 1980 is the black power movement recedes, identity politics recedes, and white and Christian America move away from religiosity, and Jews are going to follow once again um, that move away from, from religiosity. Yeah. When you talk about historiographic. Historiographic, yeah. Pietism. Nice, well done. The image that comes to my mind is the Skirball Museum, where the first thing you see is the hand from the Statue of Liberty and the videos of all the accomplished Jews. So do you think that museums should be presenting a more full picture? Or is it their job to focus on the positive because that's our public face to others? Okay, so the question's on the Skirball Museum, which is up in the Sepulveda Pass, and how its visual representation appears to be celebratory and, dare we say it, filiopietistic, and do I have any attitudes about Skirball? 
you have just asked an incredibly politically charged question because what you are bringing up is precisely the debate that LA's organized Jewish community had at the time that not when it was planned, but when fundraising occurred, how many tens of millions of dollars are going to be put into this? And the biggest debate was, in fact, that there, the word Jewish doesn't appear in the title, right? So that was seen as a movement away from being Jewish. And then once you walk in, how is Jewishness going to be depicted in, in typically a celebratory way? So my colleague, uh, Professor Ed Luby, is chair of museum studies at SF State, and I'm fascinated by the question of how museums choose to represent because I think that uh, Professor Luby and I are parallel in historiography, meaning I'll write it in a book, but he's teaching his grad students how they're going to design um, a museum exhibit. And I'm like, are you interested in like not being filiopietistic, right? And, and, how, and, and good museum folks are incredibly intentional in how they are going to represent it, and they do not want to be purely celebratory. And there's a business to museums where they have to get people to come in and see it. And people tend to like self-congratulatory stuff. So this, in the annual meeting of the museum you know, scholars, you, you would fit right in uh, into that. Um, uh, all the way in the back, yeah. Going back to uh, your comments about, uh, about the Jewish merchants in black neighborhoods. And uh, I, I got the sense that you were saying this in, uh, in a very approving way. Uh, I grew up in Chicago, uh, and in Chicago, my perception was that the uh, the Jewish merchants in the black communities were uh, marginally integrated Orthodox, and uh, the Orthodox, uh, of course, were, were the group that was generally underrepresented in uh, in these matters of of, uh, of liberation, uh, and. Uh, uh, on the other side of that point... Yeah. Do you have a question? Oh, oh, yes, I wanted to get your comments on this, but, but let me just ask the other side. You might want to take a look at, uh, or would you want to take a look at the experience of Catholics in the South? In Chicago, working-class Catholics uh, had a very bad reputation, at least with me, as being uh, conservative and, and backward-looking. In the South, they were, uh, they were uh, near the front of... Uh, of, uh, of liberalism. Right, okay. So, there, so um, the question is looking at the role of Jews in urban America, um, in um, small businesses with African-American patrons, and what my take on that would be. So, of course, there's a lots of different stories going on here, uh, and I'll speak of the historiography and the documentation. For example, in the Deep South, even in the late 19th and early 20th century, before civil rights started, Jew white Jewish shop owners were the only ones who would extend credit, to, uh, allow African Americans in, extend credit, and allow them to try on clothes. Because the moment an African American tried on a piece of clothing, a white would not buy it. Um, and if a store would allow a black to do it, then no whites would go in because they'd be afraid maybe a black person tried on the clothes. So, so that would be a countervailing thesis to my other thesis that the white Southern Jews were not supportive of civil rights. So, so both of those are in the historiography. And in the North, you can find similar cases of Jewish shop owners who are treating um, their um, communities of color um, clients very respectfully. That said, um, the literature is full of a, a more dominant uh, narrative, which is when Jews left urban, uh, urban areas for the suburbs, they didn't leave their ownership of apartment buildings and businesses behind. So they would stay operating their businesses and then drive home to the suburbs at night. So then when the buildings turned, let's say in one case all African American, there was the concern that upkeep is not there, rents are going too high, and you have an absentee landlord who is Jewish who used to be in the building until the blacks arrived and then they fled, right? So you can see that that's not going to create a good thing. The deeper question in the historiography is, is that a black Jewish thing or is that an economic Marxist thing? So what happened was when the Jews left, Koreans came in, especially in Los Angeles, and there's tension between Koreans and blacks around ownership of small business and how much respect or disrespect is given. So the, the, the new historiography is trying to compare different interracial economic relationships over time in the same city to try to determine what the causality is. So with that, last question, last question. yeah. Blacks also, also you know, it, when, when Jewish uh, 
fleers of, of the Holocaust, professors came to the United States. The Ivies would not take them in, but the historic black colleges took them in. So wouldn't you say that the outreach, there was outreach from the black community, the Jewish community? Okay, so the question is, was there outreach between blacks and Jews when historically black colleges um, hired um, Jewish refugees from Nazi Europe? And I will tell you, there's a movie on that. It's an hour long. Cal State Northridge's Jewish Studies program did it about two months ago, and they brought me in to speak on it. So I saw the movie and then chatted. It's a complicated picture. Um, in that, so what, what you've done is offered a particular historiographic perspective based upon a lot of truth that happened, and there's another interpretation. While it's true they couldn't get jobs at the Ivy Leagues, it's also true they probably weren't qualified for Ivy League jobs. It probably wasn't an anti-Semitic thing. And um, the fact that historically black colleges would hire them was great for them to be able to do it. It's also true that if they had an opportunity to get out of the historically black college to get into um, a higher paying, you know, white school to the north, they, they would get out. And they were not there because they were social justice activists. They were there because they were refugees and they needed a job. And the movie did a nice job of sentimentalizing um, personal stories between African-American students and their white Jewish Holocaust surviving professor. And the overarching question is, what happens when a victim of Nazism goes into the Jim Crow South? That's a fascinating question. Um, Cheryl Greenberg at Trinity University is the scholar on that question. And, and she has discovered that African-Americans in the Deep South were far more understanding of what Nazism did to the Jews of Europe than the contemporary Jews were to understand what racism in the South was doing to blacks. So what we actually, what I found in the movie was far more individual stories um, that were happenstance rather than any kind of theme beyond the systemic challenges they had. So thank you. Thank you.